Well, good morning, everyone. Um, during the uh, first three weeks of Advent this year, we're looking at three places in Luke's Gospel where the coming of Jesus and uh, what that means for people like us is talked about. We're calling it the apocalypse of Jesus in the old sense of that word apocalypse. We're looking together at three places where Jesus' coming is revealed, where it is uncovered for what it really is. And that is, of course, what Advent is about. We both remember and anticipate the coming of Jesus into the world. We remember Bethlehem. We remember that Jesus, as the creed said, was born of the Virgin Mary. But we also, in the middle of our own individual situations, whatever those are, in the middle of a broken and hurting common life in a broken and hurting world, We also anticipate the day when Jesus will return with both judgment and healing to make all things new. So last week we started by looking together at the prophet John out in the wilderness on the banks of the Jordan River, and this week we will continue on with him. So I'm going to read for us from Luke 3, uh, verses 10 through 20. You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Luke 3. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he left up John in prison. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that uh, those ancient words that we just sang together, um, that we would find them and experience them to be true. That you'd be happy to use this word that we have read together, that we're going to think about and talk about together to show us your son, the incarnate word, more clearly, that we would find that he is both source and ending for us, that he is everything for us. And you know those of us here who are eager for that, who want that, who are hungry and thirsty for that, and you know those of us here who don't even really have a sense for what that might mean. And so we ask, Father, that you would do what we could never do, that you'd meet every one of us exactly where we are, that you would show us Jesus more clearly, and that you would change us by his grace. And we ask it in his name. Amen. 
So uh, my parents were in town last weekend, and uh, so on Saturday of last week, we took them downtown to uh, see the sights and to get a little of that Chicago at Christmas time feel. Uh, we went to Chris Kindle Market, uh, we checked out State Street, we checked out Michigan Avenue, and um, we also strolled through Macy's. Now under uh, normal circumstances, which basically means the other 11 months of the year, um, walking through a department store is something I would avoid at all costs. Um, but you know, there is a certain undeniable charm to a bustling, cheerily decorated department store at Christmas time. So we went into Macy's and we, we rode that beautiful bank of open air escalators up and down. That in itself is great to do this time of year. We checked out the Christmas tree in the walnut room, got to play with some cool toys on the brain, at the brain store on the seventh floor. And then as our last stop before leaving, we made our way to the fifth floor where Santa Land uh, is housed this time of year. Now, it wasn't our plan uh, to wait in line to see Santa or anything like that, but we did want to get a peek at at least some of the festivities. And if you've ever been there, you know it is quite a production. The first thing that we noticed was this line filled with parents and kids. Um, it didn't look to me to be too long, and there was this fairy making her way along the line, sprinkling kids with sparkles, trying to keep them distracted while they were waiting. And out of curiosity, I asked uh, one of the elves or the fairies or something how long it would be to see Santa if we waited in that line. They told us it would be an hour and a half. So my family was just milling around, and what I decided to do was snake my way to the front of the line and see if I could catch a glimpse of old St. Nick. Little did I know that that is an impossibility. <laughs> they have him behind closed doors. He is locked up, and he is out of sight. And the only way to get in is to make it past the elves at the final checkpoint. <laughs> Those elves had a pretty serious job at the very end of that line, right in front of the closed doors, giving out final instructions, setting people's expectations, and getting people ready to meet Santa. In order to get to Santa, you had to go through them. And I hope you will make this jump with me. <laughs> but this is exactly exactly what John was doing out there in the wilderness on the banks of the Jordan River. In order to get to Jesus, we have got to go through John. As a matter of fact, this is precisely what the angel who announced the birth of John to his father, Zechariah, said. He said, this is what John is going to do. John is going to go before Jesus to make ready a people prepared. To make ready a people prepared. And that is what John is doing out there in the wilderness, right in front of the closed doors on the cusp of Jesus' advent, giving out final instructions, setting expectations, and getting people ready to meet Jesus. And this was not lost, not lost at all, on the people who came out into the wilderness to hear John preach and to be baptized by him. Luke says that the people out there were filled with expectation. They knew that something big was happening, and they knew deep in their bones it was something that they needed. This, this advent, this coming kingdom John was announcing, spoke to their deepest expectations, their deepest longings. It was beginning to meet their, their greatest hopes, and they knew, and they knew because John had told them that this coming kingdom would mean that everything would have to change, that they would have to change, that the world would have to change and they wanted it. 
And so that's why they asked John, what then shall we do? They don't want to know what they should feel in that moment. They don't want to know what to think in that moment as if this coming kingdom was just some abstract mental exercise that they were going to walk through. They want to know what they should do in flesh and blood. They wanted to know how to shape their lives. They wanted to know how to order their loves in order to be ready for this advent. So John's answer to that question is deeply relevant and deeply practical, not just for the people who asked it out in the wilderness, but for people like us too. What should we do to be ready for the advent of Jesus? What should we do to be ready to live under his gracious and peaceable rule? But before we get how to, to how John answers their question, it would be good to think for a couple of minutes about who he is exactly. Who is this guy standing in front of the closed door of Advent, giving out instructions, setting expectations? Who is this guy who is getting people ready? And I think that the simplest, the clearest, the easiest way for me to express it is to say that John's whole life was one of dissent. His whole life was a life of protest. Where he lives and works, what he says, what he does, what he looks like, even what he eats, all of these things conspire together to scream that John stands opposed. He dissents against that closed, status quo, graceless world that had been carved up and run down and controlled by the powers of his day. He is neither compliant to their power or complicit in the system they have set up. And he is undoubtedly, until Jesus breaks on the scene, until Jesus begins to teach, John is undoubtedly the most magnetic, the most compelling religious figure of his day. He dresses and he eats like the fiercest of the old prophets. A camel's hair robe and a leather belt on his body and locusts and wild honey in his belly. And the gospel writer Mark tells us that all of the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem went out to see him. It's not just a few people. It's not just the super spiritual. It's not just the super fervent ascetic types who went out to see John. Everyone went to see John. But in order to see him, they have to come away. They have to come away from their towns. They have to come away from the Roman power that exists in Jerusalem. They have to come away from the temple. They have to come away from the priests. They have to come away from their homes. They have to leave. John makes them come 20 miles out into the wilderness, which was an incredibly, incredibly significant journey in those days. And there is no coincidence that this is what John makes the people do. It's not because he's surly and doesn't like to travel. He makes them come to the wilderness because the wilderness was the place where great things started. The wilderness was the place where new beginnings were made. When God's people came out of slavery in Egypt, when they passed through the Red Sea, where did they begin their common life together? In the wilderness. And God speaks about the wilderness to his people all of the time through the prophets. It becomes this place of great expectation and great longing and deep hope. 
In Hosea, he talks to his people as if they will one day be his new bride. He says, a day is coming. I will allure her and I will bring her into the wilderness. And when she's there, I will speak tenderly to her. And then those familiar words from Isaiah that we heard again last week in the first week of Advent, words that we cannot hear enough during the season of the year. When God comes back to be with his people, how will we know? Well, here's how we'll know. A voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. So there's lots of psalms written about this, about the wilderness. There's probably 50 sermons to be preached about the wilderness, but for this morning, let me just say this. In a room like this, with as many as of, of us here as are here, there is no doubt at all in my mind that there are many who sit here this morning who feel as if they are in a wilderness. Emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally. And it feels dry and, it, and, and you feel alone and maybe lost. And if that's who you are, I just want to say that in Scripture again and again and again, the wilderness is a place of longing and hope. And it is a place where new things happen, where new beginnings are made. And there is no mistake, no mistake, no coincidence at all that Jesus himself, after he is baptized and before he begins to preach, the very first place that he goes is where? The wilderness. He knows what it is like there. And we ought to listen for him, to meet him there, if that's where we are. And there was perhaps no more clear sign of John's descent, no more clear sign of his protest than what he did when people met him out in the wilderness. He washed them. A baptism of repentance, Luke says, for the forgiveness of sins. So let me just remind all of us, in case this little point is lost on us, that if you lived in John's day and you wanted to experience the forgiveness of sins, there was a perfectly good place to go to experience it. And there, and there were guides who would lead you through that process of experiencing forgiveness. That's what the temple was for. <laughs> That's what the priests were for. But John is calling people away from that. He is calling them to something new. That is dangerous stuff, church. That is the kind of descent that will get you killed. And of course, the text we read this morning ends with John in prison, and before the gospel is finished, he will be executed for going after the powers that be And John's descent and his protest is a big fat pointer not only to the corruption of that power, but also to the promise that something better and greater and more beautiful is just around the corner. 
So like I said last week, the thing that mattered the most for John ultimately was not a dramatic moment of repentance out there by the river. I mean, that was good and that was necessary, but that was not the thing that mattered the most. For John, the thing that mattered the most was the long game. The thing that mattered the most was a life of faith lived out over time under the gracious and peaceable rule of this Advent King. And so that's why he tells the crowds, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's what they're asking about when they say, what then shall we do? (laughs) Because they have signed up. They are on board with this. They have agreed with John about the darkness. That They have agreed with him that the darkness that is out there and the darkness that is inside them, they have agreed that it needs to be dispelled and it needs to be put away. They have agreed with John on that. And now they're wondering with great expectation. They are so hungry for it. Now what do we do? And you might think a guy like John, whose whole life has been living descent, you might think that he would say to them, well, get your camel's hair robe and start eating what I eat, or that he would say, go pray or go do some penitential thing or go do some devotional thing. But John paints an entirely different picture for them. And I could never, never overstate how important it is for us to see this picture clearly. John paints a picture of the light of God's advent making its way into the world through what we do. God's justice and healing and generosity and mercy are extended into this world by the people who follow him. One of the ways that God dispels the darkness is through us. So what should you do? John says, well, here's the first thing. Whoever has two tunics should share with him who has none. And whoever has food should do the same thing. John tells us to care for the poor. And to care for those who are in need. Give generously from what you have been given for the good of others. This is what a people who are ready do. And in doing it, we extend... You know, in just about the most red-blooded and concrete way you can imagine, we extend the generosity and the grace of God into this world. And I don't think it should be a surprise to any of us that this is where John starts. As Jesus makes clear more than once, the things that we do with our stuff, what we do with our possessions, with our money, with our time, with our resources, what we do with these things that we have been given is an infallible pointer to what we love the most. Jesus said it so clearly in his Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And when Jesus says that, church, it's so important to understand that he he is not just saying, okay, so to whatever extent you are not being generous with the things that you have been given, just get up tomorrow morning and start being generous with them. Because the thing for Jesus... The thing that matters the most is not our treasure. (laughs) The thing that matters most to him is our heart. And Jesus, in saying that, is inviting us to reorder our love. To reorder our love around the self-giving love of God. The love that Jesus shows in his incarnation and life and death and resurrection and ascension for us. Church, God is wildly, stunningly, disarmingly, life-changingly present, generous with us. His generosity with us knows no end. And to follow him in faith and to order our love around the kind of love that we have received 
is to become like him. So John's word means that we first need to think about what it is that we love. In particular, who is it that we love? And then to make intentional, concrete plans to be generous in the same way that he has been generous with us, in particular with the poor and the hungry and those who are in need. This is what a people who are ready do. Because this is what the king who has come and is coming does. And this is what his kingdom is like. So next, John gives very specific advice to these two groups that have come out to see him in the wilderness. And the bare fact that that soldiers have come and tax collectors have come to see John is an eloquent testimony to the kind of expectation that this advent was stirring in people. And John meets them exactly where they are. He, tell, he doesn't tell them to quit doing their jobs. He tells them to start doing their jobs in an entirely different way. Tax collectors, of course, a hated bunch because they were notorious for gouging. They often asked for more than was due to them. And because they had the the brutal and callous and powerful violence of Rome standing behind them, they got away with it. And to them, John simply says, stop it. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers in the first century often used their position and their power to threaten, to accuse, to pillage, to rob, to extort for their own advantage. And to them, John says simply, stop it. Do not exhort money from anyone. Be content with your wages. But there is a lot more to this than stop it. Because in John saying this, he is painting a picture that is bigger For John to say this is how you become a people who are ready is to paint a world filled with the kind of justice and the kind of peace for which it was made. (laughs) The justice, the peace that we sang about at the very beginning, that justice and peace from Psalm 96, the justice and peace that we believe Jesus brings into this world, it is what we have been made for. And in particular, in these two instances, John is painting a picture where the powerful don't abuse their power over and against the weak. It's hard to imagine something more painfully relevant to consider in our own broken and tragic city right now. Where violent acts were covered up simply because they could be. John is painting a picture of a world where justice is carried out without any partiality. Little, incremental, individual acts of justice that taken together become light that chases darkness away. And we don't need to be soldiers and we don't need to be tax collectors for John's word to be relevant to us wherever any of us have any power or influence as parents or in our workplaces or in our friendships or in our schools or among our group of peers. That that power that we have, that influence that we have should not be abused for our gain. It should not be abused or used for our comfort. It should be used for the good of others. And again... It is not surprising at all that this is what John says, because the king for whom he is preparing the way did not even consider equality with God something to hold on to. 
I mean, if anyone rightly could have, if anyone rightly maybe should have, from our perspective, held on to equality with God, it would be him. But he didn't. He let it go. And he humbled himself. And he was born in our likeness. Why did he do this? For our good, for our forgiveness, for our flourishing, to bring justice and peace to us and to this whole world. So are there any among us who have power or influence or any kind of sway at all in the places where we find ourselves? Then John's word to us is simple. Do not abuse that influence. Use it to love your neighbor and use it to seek the good of the world. That's light that kicks back darkness. That's what a people who are ready do. Because this is what the king who has come and is coming does. And that's what his kingdom is like. This picture of a brand new world and of a brand new people that John is painting out there in the wilderness, it is so compelling. It is so beautiful to the people. It fills them with such hope and expectation and longing that they begin to think maybe John's the one. (laughs) Maybe he's the one who's going to do this. And so John squashes that as quickly as he can. He says, I'm nothing. (laughs) One who is much mightier than me is coming. And then I love this little mind trick that that John does. He, He kind of posits, well, maybe there's this category of people. And that category of people out there, they may be the ones who are worthy to untie his shoes. This one who's coming, I'm not even in that group. They're here. I'm not worthy. I'm I'm down here. Can't even untie his shoes. It's this beautiful humility. Especially considering that later on, Jesus will tell people that among those born of women, which is to say, everybody, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But humility is John's way. He was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. And so sandal straps aside, John wants everyone to know why Jesus is the true light. I baptize you with water, John says. But he... He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. That's not the Jesus we normally put in our minds during Advent That's not little Jesus asleep on the hay. But church, that is the Jesus who came, and that is the Jesus who is coming. He comes with the fire of judgment and purifying and healing. His his fire for those who follow him is this fire of, of purifying and healing. That is the baptism that he gives us. But in order for that healing to mean anything at all for the good of the world... He has to come with the fire of judgment as well. And this may be so unsettling to us, but we know deep in our bones that in order for the justice and the peace for which we have been made, in order for the justice and the peace for which we long, the justice and the peace which we believe Jesus brings into the world, in order for those things to endure, then evil will have to be put away for good. The light comes into the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it and so John has done his part to make us ready he has painted this picture and it breaks two ways in front of us 
He has painted this picture on the one hand of this world that he protests against, this broken down, run down, carved up world, this graceless status quo closed place, or this world where we and everything could be made new. So what do we say right now, right now, right now, in this moment, to John's invitation on the cusp of the advent of Jesus? Because the true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would do whatever you need to do to make us a people who can see this clearly, who hear John and who believe, and who become a people who are ready who become a people who are generous because we have been shown generosity, who become a people who love because we have been loved, who become a people who seek justice and peace because we have been the objects of justice and peace. Father, we ask that you would help us to see and cling to Christ clearly and that you would do it for our good and for the good of this broken world and this broken city all around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.